Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19, please. And I do hope you will stay for the 1 o'clock service because uh, this one is being live streamed. Uh, the t- 1 o'clock service will not be live streamed because of security issues. As we talk about people serving in difficult places uh, where they're uh, security is at risk, and I will be more open about that, and that will not be live streamed. Uh, it will be recorded and so that it can be burned to discs for people to watch who were not able to be here today. But do come because we'll be talking about taking risks for the gospel. We'll be talking about up-to-date reports of what God's doing and give you an overall view of the nations of the world that need to be reached for the gospel but it's risky to get in there. And what does the Bible say about risk? So uh, please make sure you stay for the 1 o'clock service as well. Uh, Our brother read this text this morning, so we're not going to go back and read through it again. But we're looking at this idea from Scripture of the end result of gospel missions and disciple-making. You know, there's nothing like finishing a project. You're working on a project at home that you're trying, making something new or repairing something or remodeling something. Um, There's nothing like finishing a product, a, a a project, a sense of relief, reaching a goal, and you stand back and admire what God in His grace has allowed you to accomplish. And when it comes to this matter of global missions and making disciples, We're involved in a long-haul process of more than 2,000 years from the Great Commission that Jesus gave us on a mountain in Galilee. And we don't know how long the process is going to keep on going. I mean, I'd love to see Jesus come back today, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came back today? And we ought to be looking for him with that expectation. Uh, I was in uh, Michigan last year in the Grand Rapids area, and I went by a radio Bible class. It was started by a medical doctor and Bible teacher named M.R. DeHaan. They put out the Our Daily Bread um, devotional guides, which used to didn't have a whole lot of bread in them. Now they got more content in them. But anyway, he had a little plaque in his office as a daily reminder, and it said, Perhaps Today. And they had that plaque out in the foyer in a glass case as a reminder of the focus that M.R. DeHaan had for his earthly ministry of preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God, that he kept that perspective perhaps today. And we ought to keep that perspective for Jesus to come back. But until he does, we're to be involved in global missions and making disciples. And it's very important for us to keep in mind that life is all about the gospel. Life's not about me. Life's not about my self-actualization. Life's not about my self-fulfillment and pursuing my dreams. Or as one false teacher says, living your best life now. I mean, now you live your best life? What about being with Jesus? That's far better than any, quote, best life now down here on earth. Being with Jesus. But life while we're here is not about us. It's about the gospel, bringing people to Jesus to glorify God. And so making disciples, we're to be involved in both locally in our own communities and globally To the ends of the earth. Because if we understand the most basic verse of scripture that we were all taught from youngest days. God so loved, not the United States of America. God so loved, not my hometown. God so loved the world. 
And so what's on God's heart is making disciples globally to the ends of the earth for his glory, for his fame, for his honor. And so that's what we ought to be focusing on. So a God-focused life is the only life worth living, bringing glory to Christ. That means for people to have a higher opinion of who Jesus is. To glorify God's name is to make God look bigger, to make Jesus look bigger in people's eyes. And as we live in a country today that's being overrun with secular progressive agendas that wants to marginalize Christianity, then our responsibility is even greater of helping people see how big our God is and how glorious Jesus is. I love the opening song we sang a while ago. I sing the mighty power of God. Our God is powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And it's our job, and it ought to be our focus in life to bring glory to Jesus, and what that does is then brings joy to our own hearts. It's not about me finding myself or discovering myself. It's all about the gospel and Jesus. So, what are all these great efforts put into missions and for disciple-making? I mean, we talk a lot about missions. I'm thrilled to see the focus that New Hope Bible Church has on global missions here. You're praying for your missionaries regularly, not just on the Lord's Day, but in the Wednesday night services and your special prayer times. You're focused on them. Their reports are displayed in the foyer. You stay in touch with them. So we talk about missions. We have missions emphases in our churches. Uh, There are missions trips from time to time. Um... And it ought to be a year-around priority in churches. So many churches, thankfully not here at New Hope Bible Church, but in so many churches, they got scads of programs. They got youth programs. They got children's programs. They got programs for recovering addictions. They got uh, programs for divorcees. They've got programs for this and that and this and that. You don't find those in the book of Acts. And I'm not saying those programs are wrong, okay? But what we do find in the book of Acts, the focus was on making disciples and missions. The mission of the church is missions. It's preaching the word, building up God's people so that the church's efforts are focused on taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The scripture doesn't tell us that we just hang a sign outside that says, all who are interested, please enter. No, we come here to get fed and to grow in grace and then we go out to tell people about Jesus. It's not something we keep to ourselves. So what's all these great efforts involved in this? It's focusing on the one thing that's of significance to God. It's His glory, His fame to all the nations on the planet. His fame, His reputation to all the place, to all the people groups, tribal groups, and nations on the planet. God's glory. And that ought to be our focus as well. But what's the end result of all of this? Because there are millions of dollars raised for missions. And this church has been so generous in your giving to global missions through frontline missions and other worthy mission agencies. Millions of dollars raised over the years. The hard work of young people who say they're called to go to the mission field, so they begin what they call their pre-field ministry or deputation, and they travel hundreds and thousands of miles and wear out a couple of vehicles for three or four years trying to uh, 
find partners and travel from church to church. And then they get to the fields and there's the difficulties cross-culturally ministering. And there's the communication back and forth as you hear reports or talk through them in a Skype call or a Zoom call. And you hear about their struggles and setbacks. It's an incredible enterprise of missionaries going out around the globe to take the good news of Jesus Christ. What's the end result of all of this? Well, let's look first this morning at the function of making disciples. And there are two activities in which God is described as, in the New Testament, as seeking. Two and only two. The first activity that God is seeking is found now in verse number 10. For the Son of Man, this is Luke 19, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What's God seeking? He's seeking unbelieving people. Now, I wish we had time to drill down in all 10 of these verses uh, for a thorough exposition. Time doesn't present it, prevent, uh, allow us to do it because we're looking at the two activities in the New Testament which God's described as seeking. But you know the story well. Here's Zacchaeus. It says he was a chief tax collector in verse 2 and was very rich. And he was a man despised by his Jewish comrades because he was viewed as working for the enemy, the Roman government. I mean, they would spit on him. They would uh, uh, be Uh, vigorous in pushing him around and having nothing to do with him. So he was ostracized by his own people. And he heard that Jesus was coming to his town of Jericho. And notice in verse 3 it says, He sought to see who Jesus was. He had heard about this this teacher, this rabbi. He had heard about this miracle worker. But he didn't know anything about him. And so as a curiosity seeker, he's just seeking out to find out who Jesus was. He wasn't really seeking God. Romans 3 tells us that no man seeks after God. Now what people do seek after is the joy, the peace, the purpose in life that come as byproducts of salvation, but they're not really seeking God. They're just seeking the benefits. And here he was as a curiosity seeker, and you know the story. He climbed up in a tree to be able to see Jesus. In verse 5, Jesus looked up and saw him and said, Come make haste and come down, because I must stay at your house today. He received Jesus joyfully, we're told in verse 6. and verse 7, notice when they, the Pharisees, saw it, they all complained, they griped, they murmured and said, He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner which is how the Jewish leaders viewed tax collectors. Now, one of the most insidious sins that people can commit, that to us is a respectable sin, we don't think it's all that bad, is the sin of self-righteousness. Where people set themselves up. Christians do this and non-Christians do it. Here were the Pharisees doing this. People set themselves up as judges over other people. And they say, we're not as bad as they are. Or we're not as disobedient as they are. Or we're more spiritual than they are. Or we're more separated from the world than they are. And we tend to look down our noses at other people for being more sinful than we are. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And they should, had they had righteous hearts, which they didn't, they should have said, you know, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, but we're sinners too, and we need Jesus just as much as this tax collector is. They should have rejoiced Jesus was going to the home of a, this, what they perceived as a huge sinner so that Jesus could bring him to saving faith. 
But no, they just look down their noses in self-righteousness, judgmentalism towards Zacchaeus. And notice what happens in verse 8. Zacchaeus stands up, says to the Lord, look, I give half my goods to the poor. Now he genuinely got saved because he just said, okay, I'm liquidating my assets by 50%. And the poor have great needs and I'm going to jump in line here to help them by giving of my assets to the poor. He just cut his assets in, in half. And then he said, and anything I've taken by false accusation, I, restore, I will restore it four times. And Jesus responded in verse 9, Today salvation's come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. Jesus said, the gospel has had its effect. This man, Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. Nobody had to tell him that. But he put his faith in Jesus, and Jesus makes a statement in verse 10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is seeking out unbelieving people. He was seeking a guy that wasn't really seeking him for salvation. Zacchaeus was a curiosity seeker, but Jesus had his eye. As he walked through Jericho, in this huge crowd of people, Jesus had his eye on one guy, Zacchaeus. Because he knew he needed to be born again and his heart would be receptive and tender. You know, God wants us. Jesus had this seeking heart for unbelieving people. Because he zeroed in on Zacchaeus. And God wants you and me to cultivate a seeking heart. My heart was thrilled at the testimonies this morning of hearing of various ones as they took opportunity to start gospel conversations with other people. People who weren't necessarily looking, but because you took specific steps to start gospel conversations, which is indicative of a seeking heart. You see, we have the privilege of being Jesus announcers. We have the privilege of sharing the good news. And the good news is not something that I've got to share with others. No, the good news is something that I get to share. It's a privilege to tell others about the one person who can forgive their sins and revolutionize their lives, radically change their lives. And we're all, as Acts 1.8 in the Acts version of the Great Commission, Jesus said, we're all witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness testifies as to what they've observed. We have witnesses at weddings. they are witnesses uh, in trials where people are called on the stand to testify what they have witnessed. And for those of us that know Jesus, we've witnessed the greatest miracle on all the world, the miracle of regeneration. And so we get the privilege of telling that we have experienced, we personally witnessed the new birth in our own lives. That's why your testimony is effective, to be able to tell people, you know, there was a time when I didn't know where I was going when I died. I had that uncertainty and fear. I had the guilt of my sins. I had no purpose in life. And then somebody introduced me to Jesus. Because that's testifying the miracle of grace that God has done in your own life. And so if we're all witnesses, the question is, am I an active witness or an inactive witness who says nothing? One of our sons was in an accident several years ago, Sunday night, coming home from church. Somebody pulled out in front of him and uh, T-boned him. He was in a uh, Jeep. Um, Thankfully, he wasn't hurt. But the next morning, one of our daughters-in-law was at school teaching. And as she was meeting with some of the other teachers before the class days began, the day of classes, one of the other teachers said, Hey, I saw this accident on this main thoroughfare last night. This guy hit a Jeep. And my sister, our daughter-in-law, sister-in-law to Nathan, she said, 
you saw that accident? She said, yeah. And she said, well, that was my brother-in-law. Did you stop to offer to be a witness as to what you saw? She said, no, I'm just busy. I don't want to get tied up in the legal system, so I didn't just even stop. And our daughter-in-law was just aghast. You saw it, and you didn't stop and make yourself available as a witness? But you know, there are a lot of Christians who've witnessed the miracle of the new birth, and they don't testify about it to anybody. It's something not that we have to do, something we get to do. And sharing the gospel can even be costly to our pride. Uh, you folks partner with Pavlo Parfenuk in Ukraine. I'll never forget being at Pavlo's ordination some 15, 16 years ago. I had the privilege of being there for the questioning and the laying on of hands. And one older Ukrainian pastor asked him this question, and it just blew me away. He said to Pablo, he said, Pablo, 20 years ago, which would have been back in the late 80s, early 90s, he said, I was ordained in the Soviet Union under the communist government. I was ordained to the gospel ministry. And he said, I was asked this question, are you willing to go to prison for being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I told them that I was. He said, now, Pavlo, we live in freedom here in Ukraine, and the government's not oppressing us like the Soviets did. But he said, I want to ask you the same question. If things change here in Ukraine and we lose our freedoms again, are you willing to go to prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Pavlo answered in the affirmative. But I thought, wow. I had been ordained some 30 years prior to that here in the U.S., and I wasn't asked that question at my ordination. So there's a price to pay for following Jesus. And when we share the good news, not everybody's going to respond positively, but we're not responsible for the results. You see, a seeking heart is one that's dependent on the Holy Spirit. It's our responsibility to share the message. A seeking heart, someone has described, its evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The bread of life. The only bread that can thoroughly nourish and change a person's souls. And God wants us to be willing to take risks for it. And we'll be talking about that again tonight. Uh, I mean, this afternoon in the 1 o'clock service. What taking risks involve. Because so often... As American believers, we get in our comfort zones. Now, our comfort zone is like um, what we get comfortable with, we're used to, and we don't want to step outside our comfort zone. Someone has said that a comfort zone is a rut. You know what a rut is? It's a grave with both ends kicked out. And we get in our comfort zones, and there are people all around us that we've known for years that are co-workers, that are neighbors, that are friends, and we've talked to them about sports and the weather and hunting and our hobbies and our families, our children, our grandchildren, but we've never talked to them about Jesus because it means stepping outside our comfort zone and taking a risk that they might get angry or they might reject us or they might ask us a question out of the Bible we don't know the answer to. So we just stay inside our comfort zones with our lips zippered shut because we don't want to take risks. And Jesus calls us to take the risk of following him, even if it were to cost us our pride. We'd much rather have the smile of Jesus on our lives than the smile of a Christ-rejecting friend. So, willing to take risks. And as I said, it's not our responsibility to convert people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I love what one of our early presidents said, duty is ours results are God's. President John Quincy Adams, he was the first son of a president to become president. 
And John Quincy Adams wrote on one occasion, duty is ours. It's our responsibility to pray. It's our responsibility to get into the Word. It's our responsibility to share the good news with others. Duty is ours. Results are God's. It's up to Him. We don't go by whether we see results or not. So in this function of making disciples, seeking heart involves intercessors who will pray. And they'll pray for God to work in the hearts of people like you've done here this morning. Praying for lost people, non-Christians who uh, have been introduced to Jesus. Gospel conversations have been started. It involves volunteers who will go and tell. Volunteers who are willing to get involved in sharing the good news. I think of a lady by the name of Mrs. Penn from one of the provinces in rural Philippines. Mrs. Penn's daughter had moved to Singapore for employment a number of years ago. Mrs. Penn's in her 70s. She's illiterate. Her daughter moved to Singapore to get a job. On the job that she got there, she had a co-worker that introduced her to Jesus, and she was born again. She was converted, repented of her sins, trusted Christ as her Savior, and was so excited. On her next trip from the Philippines, from Singapore back home to the Philippines, she met with her mom, spent time with her mom, and shared with her mom what Jesus had done for her. Now this was thrilling. Here is a converted woman now sharing the gospel with her non-Christian mother. You know, so often it's Christian parents trying to share the gospel with their own children. And a lot of children will grow up and they try and piggyback on their parents' faith and they don't have their own personal relationship with Jesus. And that's why, young people, you need your own personal relationship with Jesus. He needs to personally be your Savior, not your parents' Savior alone, but your Savior because you have come to grips with the fact that we've all sinned, we've disobeyed God's laws, we've all told lies at one time or another, we've all taken things at one time or another that don't belong to us, and that's just two of the Ten Commandments we've broken. And we desperately need a Savior and our, on, our actual orientation is towards ourselves, lovers of self. And that's why we have to be converted by Jesus so that we are given a new focus on Christ instead of on ourselves. And that's why we have to repent of our own sins, asking God to forgive us for being the boss of our lives. That's our basic problem. We want to be in charge. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. I mean, you can see that in a two-year-old. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. That's innate in us. And that's why we need to repent of our sins, asking Christ to become our Savior and wash away our sins with His own blood. And so, this woman shares the gospel with her elderly mother in her 70s, Mrs. Penn. Mrs. Penn opens her heart to Christ. She repents of her sins, receives Jesus as her Savior. She's wonderfully converted. So she's so excited about it, she wants to share the good news with everybody in her village, but she's illiterate. She can't read the Bible, so she memorizes two verses. She memorizes John 3.16, and she memorizes John 14.2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And she goes to every house in the village. And tells them what Jesus has done for her and quotes those two verses of scripture. Six to nine months go by. Mrs. Penn's daughter's pastor in Singapore gets a phone call from this village in the Philippines. And in the midst of the conversation he's told, we now have 40 believers in our village. Can we have a church now? 
All because of one senior saint who can't even read, who was serious about having a seeking heart and going and telling others what Jesus had done for her. And then God's looking for investors who will look for ways to give more. When we stand before Christ at the judgment seat, we're not going to be thinking, I wish I'd have bought more of these possessions down there, more temporal things, or chase the American dream. Those are not going to be on our mind, those kinds of thoughts, when we stand before Jesus at, in glory. So we, Frontline Missions has come up with a revised 31-day uh, prayer calendar. You can pick it up on the table in the foyer. This is the part of the world across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia that has least access to the gospel. There's some 70 countries here. Two-thirds of the world live in that part of the world. There's more land area outside of that, but only one-third of the world lives outside of there. These countries have governments, communist, Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim, that block the gospel. They block Christian websites because they don't want their people to go to Christian websites and find out about Jesus they will not give visas or permission to American missionaries, gospel workers to come into their countries. And so less than 10% of American missionaries go to where two-thirds of the world's population is. Less than 10%. That means more than 90% if America would be over here if the map were larger. More than 90% of American missionaries go to the one-third of the world that's safe because this has the highest levels of persecution and least access to the gospel. And this area desperately needs people to take the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are in darkness. And so we're asking American believers to intercede, to lift up these nations before the throne of grace. These nations, these people groups that have least access to the gospel. You can go hundreds of miles in these countries. Never see a cross, never see a church, never see a steeple. In fact, in Afghanistan, which we all know about what's been going on there, in Afghanistan, there are 48,000 Muslim mosques and one Christian church building, and that's in the Italian embassy. So even if a person was troubled about their soul, where to spend eternity? Here in the U.S., you can drive around, go to a church, hopefully meet the pastor, meet a minister who can explain the gospel. And I understand, not every church preaches the gospel. But there's a whole lot of gospel witness here in the United States. Not so in Afghanistan. If a Muslim person doesn't buy into what the Quran says. They're cultural Muslims. They're not devout. And they have questions. Who are, gonna, who, to, who are they going to go talk to? They can't go find a minister. They don't have any churches around there. Who are they going to talk to? And so intercession is desperately needed for these nations and people groups with least access to the gospel. So we're asking American believers to pray two requests. As you name a country before the throne of grace. Today's the 26th. China is the one that's number 26 on here. That's the largest country in the world and officially atheist at 1.4 billion people. So we ask people to pray. Would you pray, name a country before the throne of grace each day with these two requests. One for more goers to take the gospel. Matthew 9, 38. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest for more workers. And pray, Lord, raise them up out of our own assembly. My heart's thrilled to see the people who've gone out from New Hope Bible Church into global missions. But we need to keep looking to the next generation, those coming up. And pray, God, would you raise up more goers out of our own assembly 
to take the good news of Jesus Christ. For more goers to go with the gospel. And then to grace for suffering Christians in the persecuted church. Hebrews 13.3 tells us, remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them. You know how long it takes to name one country before the throne of grace with those two requests? Less than 60 seconds a day. Less than one minute. And by the way, families that use this together, I've had families tell me, you know, John, you were at our church two years ago. You introduced a 31-day prayer calendar. We're still using it, and our kids are keeping us on track with it. And guess what? Your children learn geography in the process. So, interceding, Lord, for the harvest. So, that's the function of making disciples and from the standpoint of uh, unbelieving people, notice if you turn to John 4, please. The next book over, we have the well-known incident. We had the well-known incident of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Now we've got the well-known incident of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. And Jesus meets with this woman. She's a hurting woman. She's been through multiple relationships living with a guy she's not married to after five husbands. She's not even accepted by the women of the village, so she goes out in the middle of the day to the well where she doesn't have to be around the other women who disdain her and look down on her and mock her. And Jesus shows up to meet him there. I I love the way the scripture says that he must needs go through Samaria. Um, Verse 4. It says he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go there? Because he had a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman. She didn't know anything about it. And so in verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now see, this dear lady, with all the pain in her soul, with all the rejection she had experienced, plus the guilt of her profligate lifestyle, Here she is doing what people do naturally, which is thinking of worship as checking boxes and outward forms. Unsaved people do this, non-Christians do this, and even Christians do it. We look at his worship as something we have to do on Sunday so we can check off the box, and we go to a certain place to worship, to a church building. For her, she said, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And she just looked at worship as something to check a box. And notice what she said in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Notice she named no object of worship. So Jesus says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour's coming where you're neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. And then he names the correct object of worship, God the Father. He said, you worship what you don't know. She didn't know what she worshipped. The Samaritans believed in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament, that's all they accepted. And so they really didn't know who, who they worshipped. They just went through these rituals to check off boxes. By the way, in terms of places of worship, God's not really interested in the place. Now, we value church buildings, and we invest in church buildings. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But keep in mind, today, on September the 26th, 2021, more born-again Christians worldwide worship in house churches than worship in a nice facility like this. 
More believers worship today in house churches than worship in nice facilities like this. Because they're often in these countries under persecution and they have to meet in secret. But Jesus says, you don't know who you worship. We know what we worship, salvations of the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, now notice this, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such. What's the such? The true worshipers to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is stressing to this Samaritan woman who's just interested for all she knows in checking boxes, God is seeking genuine worship that he so rightfully deserves. He's seeking undiluted praise from true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, genuine worship comes from those who bow the knee. The idea of worship, proskuneo, the Greek word in the New Testament, means to bow down. Bow the knee in genuine worship as an act of humility and adoration as we've done this morning, as an act of praise to our Heavenly Father, the one true Creator, Redeemer, God. This is the undiluted praise our Father is seeking. And He wants people to worship in spirit, which means it's not ritual, and it's from the heart, energized by the Holy Spirit, and it's in truth based on objective revelation, which is the Word of God. And here the, the Trinity is seen here, the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus is the one explaining this. So, our Creator God, Redeemer God in heaven, has been seeking true worship from His creation that He's created. The sad thing about the numbers today, there's 7.8 billion people on the planet. More than 2 billion of them never heard the name of Jesus living in that part of the country of the world we were looking at a while ago. And you think, well, all these people are lost without Jesus. They're going to hell. And that's true. And that's tragic. But do you know what's more tragic than that? All of these people that are lost without Jesus are failing to give God the glory and the honor He deserves. He created them. He keeps them breathing. He puts the breath of life in their nostrils. He keeps their hearts beating. He sustains their life. And they not only don't worship Him, they ignore Him or deny His existence. That's what's the great heartache. That God the Father is being robbed of the worship He deserves. So, God-seeking, unbelieving people, the New Testament tells us, to convert into people who will give Him undiluted praise. And this is the function and purpose of global missions and disciple-making. To offer up to our God true worship and bring glory to His name. We sing this in the song. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied to keep people out of hell. No, glory to his name. That has to be our focus. That has to be what's on our heart to glorify the God who gave us life. And to do that, we have to live with light of eternity. I love this illustration from Randy Alcorn. The dot represents our lives here on earth. Three score and ten or four score years, 70 to 80 years. The dot represents our birth, our lives where we grow up, our families, our education, to whatever extent that is, our work, our jobs, our employment, our church life, our hobbies, 
And then finally, when we die and pass out into eternity, the dot represents our lives, okay? And we live in the dot. That's what God designed, the parameters of our lives. We live in the dot. This is temporal right here, but we're not to live for the dot. What does the line represent? The line represents eternity. The dot's our temporal existence now. The line represents eternity. And there are three things that are eternal that we have to focus on. You say, well, John, if we're supposed to live with eternity's values in view, what's that mean? Three things. One, God's eternal. Scripture says he never had a beginning, never had an end. The Scripture tells us the Word, his Word is eternal. His Word's forever settled in heaven. And then people are eternal with a caveat. Actually, technically, we would say people are immortal. That when you were conceived in your mother's womb, a new soul was created that had never existed before. We're not Mormons that believe we lived in heaven before we came down to earth here, okay? So people are immortal, but using in a general sense, because we're going to live somewhere forever, we can say people are eternal. So those are the three things you and I ought to be living for. We ought to be living for God and His priorities. We ought to be living for His Word, and we ought to be living for people. And so... God wants us to learn to live for the line. This right here. This is what's eternal. God, His Word, and people. Learn to live for the line and not for the dot. And too many Christians, because they're creatures of the dot, live for the dot. Instead of having an eternal view in living for the line and what counts forever. God's a forever God. His Word is forever and people are forever. So what does that mean as we wrap this up? Would you turn please to Revelation 7, the fulfillment of making disciples. We looked at the function of making disciples. Now look at the fulfillment in Revelation 7. The fulfillment of making disciples. John saw this future event as the Holy Spirit gave him this vision. It was future to John 2,000 years ago, and guess what? It's still future to us in 2021. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. And he sees something incredible. Verse 9 of Revelation 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here John sees a mega multitude. He sees this innumerable throng of people. He said nobody could number it. Now of course God knows what the number is because he's omniscient. Now here in life on planet earth in the United States, we've had large crowds gather. We can, there are some Football stadiums like the University of Michigan, they call it the big house. It seats 100, uh, right at 110,000 people, and they can count all those people. There have been marches on Washington where the National Park Service takes aerial photos and squares off quadrants and counts the people in them, and they can count over a million people. They've had like a million-man march in Washington. They've had these large crowds, but they can count them. But this is a multitude. This is a throng nobody can number. Of the redeemed of the ages. From every tribe and nation. And this is a future event that God's looking forward to. Okay? A future event he's looking forward to with these 
willing participants. The United Nations has 192 nations in it. There's going to be somebody from each one of those nations gathered in this throng. There's some 16 to 17,000 people groups on the planet. There's going to be somebody from every single people group on the globe at this throng gathered in heaven. Every tribe, every people group, every language group. You say, how will there be redeemed people from even like a country like Somalia that's listed as 100% Sunni Muslim? Well, there's some underground Christians in Somalia, but they're so far underground it's hard to find them because they know if they mention they're following Isa, the Arabic name for Jesus, Al-Shabaab, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Somalia, will slit their throats. So they're underground in Somalia. But there are going to be people in heaven from even Somalia and places like North Korea. You say, how will that happen? Because somebody had to share the gospel with them directly through missionaries through the centuries or through radio broadcasts or satellite TV broadcasts or internet uh, access or gospel tracts or people leaving Bibles. I read how, read this past week about Christians in South Korea to take these helium balloons and they put Bibles and gospel tracts and they check when the weather's just right and at certain points along the DMZ they launch these balloons to go up in North Korea and then drop down there so the North Koreans can have access to Bibles and gospel tracts. And the sad thing about it is the South Korean government that's supposed to be free is cracking down on the Christians doing this saying, hey, you know, we're trying to work out our relations with North Korea and work towards unification and you're messing it all up by sending Bibles up there. So they're starting to punish Christians in South Korea for trying to get Bibles into North Korea but anyway, somebody has to tell them in this vast missions effort because there are 1.4 billion people in China. There are 1.3 billion people in India. There are 1.5 billion Muslims on the planet. And yet they're going to be redeemed people out of all of those nations and people groups. And how will that happen? An innumerable throng of people from every language, tribe, people group, and nation because of faithful believers trying to get the gospel out. And notice of these willing participants gathered around the throne, all believers will be present. In fact, it says in verse number 11, all the angels stood around the throne. That's one group. And the elders. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 4, you'll see mentioned the 24 elders, and that's where it's believed that they represent the redeemed of all ages. Twelve representing the Christians from the twelve apostles and twelve representing the tribes of Israel. So this is the redeemed of all the ages, including you and I. You and I who know Jesus will be present at this grand occasion. But we haven't spent much time thinking about it. You know, when you're going on a trip and you're going to visit a new place and you look at the sites you want to see and the places you want to check out and what you want to do while you're there. And you can spend a lot of time getting ready to go on a trip to someplace special for your enjoyment. We need to be checking out this event that God's planning in heaven one day that we're going to be at if you know Jesus personally. Those that just have a head knowledge of Christ and are not born again won't be present here. And this is ultimate reality. Gathered around the throne, the willing participants, and notice their worshipful praise in verse 10, crying with a loud voice. And I love this because this is the church, the redeemed, united 
Satan loves to cause division and drive wedges between Christians here and now and prior to eternity. And Christians in local churches can get divided up and upset with one another and split up over all kinds of things. And Satan has a heyday. You know why? Because we get opinionated and we think our opinions are right and we push our opinions. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his series on Ephesians chapter 5. Series of outstanding expositions where he talks about being fruit, filled with the Spirit. Spirit controlled. And he says an opinionated person is not a Spirit controlled person. You see, we have a high opinion of our own opinions. We have a high opinion of our feelings. People don't like their feelings to get hurt. I wish I had a dollar for every professing Christian that ever left the church in the United States because they got their feelings hurt. I would be a millionaire. Because we're in love with our feelings. We're in love with our opinions. But notice here, here the redeemed praising God with a loud voice. Perfectly united. No more division, no more disagreements. And what are they doing? They're offering up praise to our great God for His eternal salvation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We sang about the Lamb earlier this morning. We sang about the power of our great God in drawing people to saving faith and to Jesus as the King and crown Him with many crowns. He is the one worthy of praise. Andrew Murray said, well-known missionary statesman from South Africa of a previous generation, he said, the enthusiasm of the kingdom is missing today because there's so little enthusiasm for the king. So little enthusiasm for the king. God wants us to be in love with Jesus, amazed with Jesus, enamored with Jesus, captivated by Jesus, and focused on Jesus. So we will praise our great God for His eternal salvation. And we'll praise Him as we bow on our faces in true worship. Notice what it says uh, at the end of verse 11. The elders, the four living creatures, fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Finally, He will get the undiluted praise that He has been waiting for. This is ultimate reality where we will fully treasure Christ. See, down here, we don't give God undiluted praise. So often our worship from fallen hearts is diluted with our depravity. And our minds wander. It happens to me. It happens to you. How many times are we singing in a hymn and we're down on the second or third stanza and all of a sudden it hits me. You know what? I don't remember what I just sang in the stanza before because my mind wandered off to something else. We don't give Him undiluted praise here. We give Him praise that's mixed with our own depravity. But on this occasion, God will finally receive the true worship from His redeemed people that He's been waiting for. I close by telling you about William Borden. William Borden was raised in the Borden Dairy Company. Borden Dairy fame. His dad had started it. He was born in 1887. The Borden Dairy in Chicago was going strong. In 1905, he graduated from high school and his parents gave him a million dollars when he graduated from high school. Now let me tell you something. In 1905, a million dollars is worth a whole lot more than it is in 2021. And they sent him on a cruise around the world. There weren't planes by then operating. You fly on. So in 1905, he went on a cruise around the world. And at every port of call where they stopped and he went ashore, 
He saw teeming thousands of people in darkness that didn't know Jesus. And God called him to the mission field through that cruise around the world. So he went to Princeton University in 1905, fall of 1905, to study for the ministry. And Princeton was a Bible-believing institution back then, but he even started prayer groups, and they had some revivals while he was there. He graduated from Princeton, and after he graduated, his, uh, at the end of his senior year, his dad suddenly had a heart attack and died. The chairman of the board and dairy president, chairman of the board. And so the board came to William Borden said, you grew up in this company, you know the company backwards and forwards, your father's passed away, we want to offer you the presidency of the Borden Dairy Company in light of your experience and accomplishments. And William Borden said, you know what, I'm so honored that you would offer me to be the president of this company my dad started. He said, but God's called me to the mission field, and I can't turn back from that, and I politely decline your offer. So he wrote in the back of his Bible, in the fly leaf, this little statement, no retreats. He went on to Yale University to seminary, to Yale Seminary in New Haven, Connecticut. And even while he was in seminary, instead of spending his night studying, he was out on the street trying to reach alcoholics, drunkards with the gospel. In fact, he even started a rescue mission in downtown New Haven, Connecticut, where he'd go drag guys out of the bar and take them to the rescue mission that he started to get them under the sound of the gospel to get them saved. And while he was involved in that endeavor, of course, he had plenty of money to do this with, the Spirit of God spoke to his heart and said, you know, if you're going to go to the mission field, you've got to trust me. You can't trust this large inheritance you've got of a million bucks. So he made a decision to give away all of that million dollars to multiple mission agencies that he had confidence in. And he wrote in the back of his Bible, under no retreats, no reserves. He wasn't going to uh, keep his hands on the money that he inherited as a cushion. He was going to trust God and walk by faith. He gave away his inheritance. He graduated from seminary at Yale and he went to Egypt to study uh, Arabic, because he was burdened, and this is 19 now, this is 1912, he was burdened to reach the Muslim Uyghurs in western China. We've heard about them, how they're being so abused and persecuted by the communist uh, Chinese party. So he's in Cairo studying Arabic, and he gets struck with bacterial meningitis, and his friends send a message home by telegraph, this is 1912, to his mom saying, if you want to see your son before he dies, you need to come right now. Well, she got on a ship, went to Cairo, and by the time she got there, William Borden had gone into the presence of Jesus. Um, there, after serving so, what we would call, humanly speaking, little time in the country of Egypt in preparation for going to China. So, here he was at Basically 25, 26 years of age, his life cut short by human standards. His mom gets there and she's going through his personal effects. And she finds that Bible and she's flipping through it and finds in the back where he had written no retreats, no reserves. And then he also penned in a shaky hand underneath it, no regrets. Now here's a guy that lived a very small period of time on earth. And didn't get to fulfill the mission he thought God had laid on his heart to reach Muslim Uyghurs in China with the gospel. 
But he was able to write before he passed into eternity, no regrets. So William Borden's grave is in a, a small part of Cairo, not too far from the Egyptian Museum of Antiquities, where the wealth of all the pharaohs are. And there's a huge contrast in his simple grave and all of the wealth of the pharaohs that they put in their pyramids to take them into the afterlife. They put their money and assets and gold and jewelry in their pyramids to help them in the afterlife, which wasn't going to do them a bit of good. You know what William Borden had done? He gave all his away because he was laying up treasure in heaven. And he was buried in a simple grave in Cairo, Egypt. So this is the end result of disciple making and global missions. What is it? Finally, the Lord of glory receives the worship due to him from those he's redeemed and washed from their sins with the blood of his son. And that ought to be our focus as well. Lord, life's not about me. I want to be part of this amazing enterprise of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth for the fame of Jesus, for the glory of God to the nations. And we ought to, as redeemed believers who were so grateful for our salvation that we've redeemed out of the miry clay and He set our feet on a rock and established our going and put a new song in our mouths, we ought to be saying, hey, where can I sign up? How can I get involved as either an intercessor, as a volunteer to go locally or to the ends of the earth or just an investor to take the assets God's given me and give them to further the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you do a work in our hearts this morning? Forgive us for being self-centered and focused on our feelings and our dreams and our self-fulfillment instead of being focused on the gospel to the ends of the earth and the fame of Jesus. Thank you for your great grace to us. Thank you for this church and their heart for the gospel Continue to do a work in all of our hearts because we all are great sinners in need of your continuing grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.